thank you so much for that um, uh, very honoring introduction, um, uh, Matt McGill. And Matt and Megan um, are really a kind of a hub of, a, of an interactive wheel here. Um, wheel in the sky keeps on turning. You know, uh, people often ask me, what is the greatest rock group of all time? And obviously the answer is Journey. And um, the, uh, uh, the, 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 I see that they're kind of a hub. I, I even think they may be on the cover of a magazine uh, this uh, week here in Tyler. And um, I want to thank the bishop for his welcome and uh, Matt Bolter and to be in this beautiful early 20th century um, building with its complete cycle of windows that were all put in and created at exactly the same moment um, that are really um, simple to the point of being wonderful. And I commend uh, this uh, interior as an unrestored early 20th century Episcopal interior of the highest quality. Now, um, it is true that people, when they speak, do well to talk about nothing for the first 10 minutes because it takes about 10 minutes for uh, you to get used to whatever my voice sounds like or for you to not think about this, that, or the other thing that is on your mind at this moment. So I could be reading to you from the Tyler telephone book at this moment and it would mean absolutely nothing. So anything that I say initially is completely lost and meaningless. Um, but I'll go on for 10 minutes and then maybe uh, it'll begin then to interest you possibly. Um, and what I would like to do today, and I'll speak for about um, 40 minutes and then perhaps take questions, is to um, talk about the, um, the um, extraordinary hazards of being a human being that are so uh, besetting and painful and um, confrontative and resisting to any kind of solution that um, we look uh, our entire lives for some kind of meaningful, practical solution to the pain and the loss that is intrinsic to being a human being. Now, uh, you may say, well, that's a little bit of a heavy thing to say, but it's not actually remotely removed from the reality of human existence. Little children understand it instinctively, psychodynamically, but they don't, it doesn't register till years afterwards. Um, old people know it with such power that they become absolutely, overwhelmingly, according to the percentage, clinically depressed. The um, percentage of, of people over the age of 80 who are, quote, clinically depressed is 85%. And the number of people right here for whom life has presented some inoperable or imposing no that you are still in some kind of shock as to how it happened and how to process it and how perhaps at some point to transcend it and overcome it is really the fundamental inner dialogue of your entire life. It's what you're actually thinking about. Someone said the other night, well, this fellow is so lonely. She was saying, this man is just unbelievably lonely and that is driving this particular obnoxious neurotic formation that makes him even become lonelier. And uh, the um, point that I want to try to make to everyone here, speaking to you as an individual, 
not as a group, but speaking to you as an individual, is how is it that Christianity and the gospel message can actually um, work in such a way that it might work possibly most of your life, and most especially might work in the very difficult periods, and might actually even be helpful um, you know, uh, give me that old-time religion. It'll, what is it, when I'm dying? That will actually accompany you at the troubling times um, of uh, the cessation of human life. Now, again, um, as a pastor, I'm so impressed by how often people who are lovely Christian people of any different type you want to name are somehow not able to draw upon it when there is a particularly difficult crisis. I'm with somebody recently whose husband um, was uh, dying, uh, and he had about 48 hours to live. And this is a person of enormous faith and resiliency and depth of Christian understanding. And so beset was this person by the imminent death of her husband that it was as if she had never, ever been to church in her entire life. Faith went out the window in the face of anxiety, overwhelming fear, and putative loss. I remember in Birmingham, someone whom I adored, absolutely adored, and she was not young, but nor was she old in human terms, and she had a heart surgery that went amiss. And visiting her before the second reparative surgery. And her life was suddenly, to her complete shock, her life was in the balance. And the look of fear, she was so plugged in that there was no way she could speak to me. But the eyes tell it all. And the look of fear was so overwhelming and powerful that I said, oh my gosh, you know, uh, we need a a major intervention here. So the point of this first little talk is to try to talk about the the depth of the problem of being human, and this applies to people from two months to 85 years, and the reach of the gospel message, if it does in fact reach, to people over the long haul. Now, I was almost sued once in Birmingham because I announced a fact that I had learned from a friend of mine who is an executive with a prominent um, baking company, and he had told me that the shelf life of a little Debbie Yodel, do you know what the shelf life of a little Debbie Yodel is? 17 years. Think of the implications of that. And I announced in the pulpit, because I was talking about, you know, wouldn't it be great if the gospel in my life had a shelf life of 50 years or 30 years or 40? And I announced blithely, thinking I was being very funny and kind of, you know, like he knows something. Um, But it is true. That had been told me. And I announced it. And there happened to be a guy visiting that week who was an executive with the Little Debbie Company. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. This actually, people in the ministry, if, you, if you're a pastor, you've been in the ministry, a lot of things happen. 
Over the years, you, you get involved in situations that you cannot imagine could ever happen, but simply because you're dealing with people in sorrow and difficulty as well as good times, you learn things. Well, I got a letter from this man, from an attorney, saying, if this is to advise you that if you ever say such an irresponsible statement again, we will personally sue you. So, um, <laughs> I expect a letter to come. Um, but I, I, I thought I would, I thought I would uh, talk about um, uh, the, um, the, uh, the soul of the gospel, how low can you go, which is simply Matt McGill's summary of what I told him I'd like to talk about, in terms of the depth of the Christian claim and see if it actually can spur you tonight to some renewed confidence in the power of God in your life, whatever place you are in the course of human existence. Um, I'll refer to Jimmy Webb uh, from time to time, the uh, great American songwriter from um, Oklahoma who wrote so many number one songs for Glenn Campbell in the 70s, like By the Time I Get to Phoenix and Wichita Lineman and Galveston and many others. And he's still going strong. He wrote about 200 top 10 hits. He, to me, is on a par with Irving Berlin, but of a different generation. But he um, is a man whose um, understanding of the sorrow of human existence, particularly related to the loss of love, is so deep, his songs are so disturbing because they are so accurate, that he, he has it in his fingertips to be in touch with suffering. I'm the Wichita lineman, and I'm sending out a message to you, whom I'll never hear from again, and I'm still on the line. How many of you are still on the line for somebody who's long departed your life, either through death or divorce or separation or whatever? How many of you here are still on the line? So Jimmy uh, Webb, has a, he happens also to be a devout Christian, which is interesting and important. And in a very rather um, eccentric song uh, called... Um, I think it's called Footprints. David, what is the full title? Walk Your Feet in the Sunshine. Walk Your Feet in the Sunshine. It's a dippy sounding song that was performed by the Fifth Dimension in 1984. And it's about a man looking at his girlfriend's feet, which are kind of covered with purple sores and are kind of, her shoes are a mess. And it's really a metaphor for her life. And he looks at her and he said, I can see you don't have much confidence from the way you stand. Um, I see it in, the, in your insole. He's talking about how he, how he sees what's going on with his girlfriend from her shoes. Now it sounds kind of like a dumb, obvious metaphor, but the song is deep because he's actually talking about your feet and your shoes as a metaphor or an image of the life that you have led. And he talks about her insole. You'll see it all in the insole of the shoe. So what I want to talk about, and now I hope you're beginning to cue in to my, uh, to my talk. Now the talk actually begins. All that was extemporary and 100% made up. 
but not except for the little Debbie. Um, and I hope I am going to talk about your insole. By that I mean to say your soul. And your soul is the real eternal part of everyone who's here. It is that part of you which will um, last and has always existed and will never not exist. It is the essential part of every person sitting in this room. Whatever you believe about the afterlife or not or God or not, and most of you probably do believe in those things, and I do, your soul is that part of you which is eternal and is the part of you which is actually most vulnerable and most damaged and most hurt and most open and most... um, really needing to be reassured and helped and cured and healed and sewn up. Now, um, the thing about the Christian faith, and I'm actually going somewhere with this talk, is um, the Bible um, believes that if you are wrong about the diagnosis, you will inevitably be wrong about the cure. I mean, anyone here who's ever been to a doctor... If the doctor gave you the wrong diagnosis, and it has happened, there are people who have received the wrong diagnosis through a doctor who simply wasn't very good, or he or she simply read the signs wrong, or interpreted your uh, diagnostic chart through the lens of, of somebody else's chart, it is possible to make an error. And if you have the wrong diagnosis, your attempt to find an answer to your problems will fail. If you think the answer is, um, there's a movie called The Arrival, which is a science fiction movie, and it's written by people who, it's very well done, it's brilliantly done, but it's completely ignorant. There's no wisdom in it at all. It somehow has the idea, whoever the young person that wrote this was, she or he believed that somehow it's all in sort of language. It's all about language. Life is all about communication skills, language. Well, that's not true. I mean, language is important, and if I don't speak your language, we're not going to communicate, right? But the thing that really matters is that I'm like you. It's, I, can, I can talk to you and not know anything of your language, and yet we can be completely at one. I can be a deaf-mute And we can be uh, on a desert island somewhere. And you and I can be utterly and completely in communication because the soul, soul deep, as the box tops sang. Remember the box tops? I mean, those of you who are our church ought to cross yourselves right now. The box tops, soul deep. I can communicate with you without words. All I need to do is play a rock song. Remember what Glenn, uh, what Jimmy Webb said again in one of his greatest songs. He said, oh, you're different just like me. So um, you, if, if you, the, the, people that made, the, the people that made Arrival don't understand the problem that they're facing. So they created an arbitrary and secondary rather than core solution to the problem that we face. So what I'd like to do for just a few minutes is talk about the depth of the problem. Now, if you come from a Reformed tradition, you might be saying, well, when is he going to get to the Bible? Or if you come from an evangelical tradition, and I feel very much comfortable with the word evangelical myself, you might say, where is the Bible? Well, this is actually my way of uh, expositing Romans chapter 3. 
I'm just not telling you that it's about Romans chapter 3. Because I'd like to connect with you, you might say, beyond the words of an inspired, insightful passage. But it's actually about Romans chapter 3. And um, the, um, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the diagnosis of the human condition. And then I'm going to talk about the gospel as, as an extraordinarily potent answer to it. And then um, I'm going to close. And tomorrow I'm going to talk about how does this pan out over a life of 40 years how do you live through a divorce that you never, ever thought you'd be part of or be involved in? How does this apply without losing your faith in God and man? How do you deal with the loss of a child when God gave you the child? How do you deal with what a lot of men happen to men? And I, I, I believe in gender differences. I just do, not because I believe in them, because I observe them. I observe gender differences, whether there should be there or not. But I find that men, if they receive a blow to their careers in their 50s, never recover. Never. Most men that I know that receive a sock in the jaw at work at age 50 and lose their livelihood, usually through some kind of inter-office political deal, never recover. And I am often dealing with, it's like that's worse than things that we would think would be much worse. And so I want to talk to you about how does, how does the gospel stay with you? How does it become a resource to you at that particular time? Um, that's, I'm going to talk about the resistance that life and the psyche bring to people as they encounter catastrophes and problems in life such that the gospel still keeps you, as opposed to the person I was mentioning earlier, who it was like, a, like she'd never been, you know, we saw this with my wife's uh, parents. My wife's parents are, we would have called them in the old days, salt of the earth, solid citizens of a small southern town. And one of Mary's parents died profoundly, in the context of a thankful, deeply believing, nurtured, positive Christian faith. Another of Mary's parents, who is a wonderful person, never missed a Sunday in church in her entire life, died as if she'd never once been ever once. It was as if suddenly something happened that was so beyond the, the range of her Christian confidence as to make it almost as if it had never existed at all. And isn't that fascinating that one person could have somehow been comforted at moment, the moment of, of the deepest dissolution and yet departed in a way of, of, of true faith in, in the ultimate power of, of, of the eternity of, of his life before God. And another person wouldn't. So I guess what I want to say, I would love it if, if this was the kind of talk that could make you think about yourself how does your faith accompany you? Remember Bob Seger? Someday, lady, I'll accompany you. I think Bob Seger's overrated, by the way. I have to tell you. I think he's a fake. But David differs. David differs. Uh, now, um, the, um, one of the things about speaking is if you're going to speak for 45 minutes, which is too long, uh, I say that to Presbyterian ministers, um, uh, but if, if, if you're going to speak for 45 minutes, break it up with humor. 
You, you, you have to break it up with humor uh, if you don't give them a bathroom break. Uh, now, the, the thing about, uh, let's look at in the Romans chapter 3, the um, depth of uh, Paul's um, impression of what the human uh, life and individual life is like. And these are familiar words, but they're profound ones. He says, um, I have already charged that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Then he concludes that little peroration which is quotations from the Old Testament by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, there's two things about that picture of the human condition. One is, we are under the power of sin. Sin is not something I do. It is something that compels me. Anybody here who's ever had a strong temptation that is irresistible understands what it is like to be under the power of something. You know, I'm just so drawn to this person. I, I don't understand. I'm, I'm just so drawn to, this, drawn to this person. It's like the, the ray in Star Wars that pulls you. Um, the thing about sin in the scripture, and this is an insight that uh, was unique in the New Testament, was that we are under, whether we like it or not, the power of certain forces that are irresistibly strong and are controlling our lives. Now, you may say, well, that's not true. I'm a sovereign, free citizen of the state of Texas. Or I am a, I am, I am woman. You know, Anne Murray, I am woman. You know, no. I wish you were a woman. But in fact, you are under the power of forces that are unseen, but express themselves in your head constantly. Anybody here, I mean, if, are you ever the victim of daydreams that are, are upsetting? I used to say this all the time and people got too upset, but I would say, well, you know, I, I, sometimes I have, I'm, I'm with someone I love, this is obviously not my wife I'm talking about, but I have, I'm cleaning the dishes, I'm washing the dishes, and I'm putting away the knives. I'm putting away the knives. And this sudden image comes into my head is, I think I'll stab to death the person who's next to me. Now, I use that and say, oh, how could you possibly? That's a terrible thing. You really have those thoughts? Well, I don't, but you do. <laughs> Uh, people, you know, I, I think that's, I think, so, so the, 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 to say that you're not under the power of sin would be empirically non-provable because empirically we are under these extraordinary forces that make us do and say and think and feel things that we cannot control. I and mean, who here wouldn't like to control their thoughts? Who here wouldn't like to control their dreams? Anybody here have a recurring dream? Remember the Twilight Zone? It's called Shadow Play. And it came out in 1961, the Shadow Play episode. And it was remade in 1984 with the exact same script by Rod Serling. And it's about a poor chap who has a recurring dream about being tried for a crime he didn't get commit and being executed. Now, does he want to have that dream? Do you want to? So the first thing is we're under the power of it. And secondly, everybody is. I'm different just like you. 
Everybody is. Now, why is that powerful and important? Because first, it allows me to really speak the truth. So much of what you hear in this world is a rationalization. So much of what you hear in the world is people telling you things that are an attempt to whitewash or diminish the fact that we are under the power of enormous Oedipal and id-related forces that are psychologically enthralling. And we wish it weren't so, but it is so. And so Paul um, was the first thinker in the history of the West who understood that people do not, are not as free as they think. No, I'm not going to go all the way and say we don't have free will because somebody's bound to get upset and think about it abstractly. Abstractly, we all have free will. But concretely, we don't. I mean, I want to say to you, yes, we all have free will. I agree. But personally, I know that that's not really the fact because I've raised children. I'm a child myself. I've been married for over 40 years. How could I possibly say I have free will <laughs> uh, on, on the basis of simple living? So, that, and this, so he does two things here that I, I want you to try to remember. First is that we're under the power of forces that are more powerful than we are. And secondly, that everybody, he said, there is no fear of God. All have turned aside. No one does good. No one is righteous. Now, why is that powerful? Partly because it gives compassion. If you believe that the obnoxious person with whom you have to live, or with whom you used to have to live, or with whom you once lived, if you believe that, that uh, they were an exemption from the normal rule of sin, and they were not under the power, then what would you do when they were obnoxious? You would have no compassion for them. You would just blame them. You know, I live with this impossible man. I mean, if anybody knew, and all my girlfriends do, know what it's like to live with this impossible, demanding, egotistical, selfish man, they would have, I mean, that's what happens when you don't realize that men and women are really the same, not on the surface, but underneath it. I mean, how could you be married if you didn't believe that? Otherwise, you're living with, with someone who's uh, like from Mars or Venus. And you, how could you possibly communicate with her if you didn't feel that deep down you were the same? And secondly, how could you have compassion on, on a drunk or an addict if you didn't believe that people are under the power of something? I mean, the whole power of the AA thing is that you, you, you have compassion on people who cannot help themselves. So what I'm trying to say is the diagnosis is... Um, the uh, core um, uh, first fact of human existence. Now, Christianity and the gospel and the New Testament happens to understand um, human nature at a very deep level. And that is why, um, you know, Hannah Arendt, she was a, a famous New York philosopher of the 50s and 60s and before then. And she wrote in one of her early books in the German language, and she was not a Christian in any way, shape, or form, that she could never understand how it was that St. Paul was the first and in some ways the only great thinker who had, only, who had ever given an explanation for why people do the things they do. They are not free but rather, let me, so you don't get upset, they are not as free as we think we are. Let's just put it that way. We are not as free as we think we are. Now, the next thing I want to do, and I'm going to speak about 10 more minutes, 
um, 15 more minutes, um, and, then, uh, and then we'll open it up. Um, if you realize that we're under the power and we're all the same in this way, well, then you're, you're not going to try to um, judge people on the basis of trying to see that they change. Um, you're going to stop comparing you're going to stop sort of trying to incrementally get better. How many of you are waiting for your husband to get better? How, how many of you are waiting for your wife to change in some way? I mean, maybe finally she'll sort of get interested in the romantic side of marriage. I'm trying to be unvulgar. Uh, you know, maybe one day she'll kind of be interested in whatever it is I'm interested in at the time. Uh, or maybe this man, at one t- maybe he'll actually finally really care about me. You know, sometimes I think that he only cares about me in respect to what I can do for him. And I wish for once that I might get the message that he actually has my welfare as the primary object of his love. Now, the fact of the matter is, if you want that to happen in some kind of comparative terms, you want to see some kind of gradual amelioration, um, it, it, it will never happen on that basis. It will only happen from the new man. I use that word, that's the old-fashioned word. It will only come about if that man who's so difficult is so deconstructed by life that he, becomes, he gets into contact with a love that is not his own. It will only happen when he is so shattered by whatever it is that he needs to be shattered by, that he's no longer trying to kind of incrementally create a life. Because if you're trying to incrementally create a marriage or a life or a child, it always fails, not because it couldn't happen, but because it will never fail on that basis. Now, that's a shorthand for saying, shorthand for saying, No human being will be justified in God's sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The human problem is based on the idea that I can criticize and evaluate the one I love with the idea that they're going to get better, and that I can criticize and evaluate my life in the idea that I can make improvements. And that is called the law. It is some form of trying to do something, to change something, to live up to a standard. I wish it were true. I've often wished it were true. But at this point in my life, I would say it is categorically false. A matter of fact, the more I try to change someone, inevitably the more blowback I get. Remember what the Bible says. Law increases the trespass. Remember, that's from the King James, which is, by the way, much better. Stay with the King James. I'm not convincing you. Stay with whatever you're comfortable with. You know, uh, comfortable. Do you like that word? I just can't stand that word. It's it's like the word conversation. It's been completely destroyed. Um, You want to have a conversation with me? I remember in uh, Friday Night Lights, um, the mother of the, you know, the wife of the coach in Friday Night Lights is always talking to her daughter, and she's always saying, honey, you and I need to have a conversation about that. Now, no wonder her daughter never has the conversation. <laughs> what if I come up to you and say, you know, you and I need to have a conversation. Are you going to say, oh, great. 
My mother used to say that occasionally, and my answer was to move to England, <laughs> I, I mean, so to speak. So um, back to where we were. The, um, the, in the book of Romans, St. Paul says three times that law increases the very thing it is meant to, to transform. The more I criticize you, not only does it not work, but it backfires and makes me much more hostile to your even best well-meaning attempts. And this, by the way, is the story of almost all marriages and certainly the story of all teenagers. Every problem you've ever had with your teenager, despite their genetically, psychologically inherited um, uh, genetic pool of wanting to become criminals, um, every uh, teenager that um, has ever lived is entirely um, motivated by the idea of distressing you if you represent any form of the law and making you pay the most bitter penalty for any kind of judgment you may ever have. Have you ever watched your daughter get married to the wrong man? <laughs> or, <laughs> or have you ever watched your son get married to uh, the, obviously what you believe is the wrong person? There is only one thing you can never do. And I mean never. What is that? Bring it up. Say it. The moment you say it guarantees the marriage will take place. And if you say it once, it'll take, the marriage will take place in three months. If you say it twice, it'll take place next weekend. <laughs> so what that is simply to say is the problem with, um, with diagnosing life by means of uh, some kind of... Uh, um, idea that we are freely choosing and that we are basically autonomous individuals that are not under the power of something we cannot control, or that this person is the exception to the rule, is, is, is not only um, a lack of compassion and pity, but ultimately it's, a, uh, it, it's the end of your relationship. If you are married to a person who is condemnatory and critical in this day and age, the marriage will not last. A hundred years ago, the marriage would have lasted. You just would have, quote, sucked it up. But today, no. So um, let's now get to what the uh, gospel actually is in light of this uh, irresistible problem. But everybody is, is, is looking for an answer. You see, the thing about um, people, we're all under the power of these things, but your soul is desperate to be connected to another human being. I'm going to sound a little new agey. Just give me a break. I'm going to sound a little new agey. I'm only going to sound a little new agey because it's true to the extent that it's true. The primary human need is to be connected with another person. That is the driving need. People will move 10,000 miles in the hopes of being connected in love to another person. I don't even want to sort of make it a gender thing. We will move not 10,000 miles. I know people who've moved to Australia in a heartbeat in the hope of meeting someone they have talked to on the internet. Literally moving to Australia in a heartbeat because of someone they've never met face to face who lives in Australia because somehow the need to be connected with a human being in love is that powerful. So that tells you that we're looking for something at the same time as we're under the influence. The greatest example of this in the movies is The Exorcist. 
the original exorcist, where she is being, shall we say, obnoxious behavior to, to, to um, have projectile, you know, you know, projecting that on her mom. Uh, it's not exactly uh, inclined to make her mother love her more. But on her chest, little, um, what is her name? An Irish name. The, the, the girl, anyway, the little girl. The words on her, on her chest are, help me. So on the one hand, she's projectiling with her, you know, her digestion. And on the other hand, she's saying, help me. And that's where we are. Now, you may say that's strong, but I've seen it happen. I, I, I almost don't know of any exceptions in the long haul of a person's life. Now, um, he then um, says, uh, in words that are, uh, to me, um, very important, he says... Um, uh, but now, the righteousness of God, which is to say, the ability for a person's soul to rule their life, rather than the negativity of these false constraints, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law. Uh, let me use, the, the worst word you can possibly use, although it's getting a little outdated now, is tweaking People will say, you know, I'm tweaking this proposal, I'm tweaking this, I'm tweaking something. No. The heart is the only, only thing. You can tweak a thing a million, a million ways, but if the heart's wrong, a million tweaks, or people say, oh, the devil is in the details. That's completely untrue. How many times have I heard politicians say, the devil is in the details? It's like a mantra. It's completely untrue. The devil is not in the details. It's in my heart. There's a Jimmy Webb song called, um, from an album from 1974 called Earthbound, and he says, I can lie with my lips and deceive you with my eyes, but my heart and I never lie. That's the fifth dimension, 1974. I can lie with my lips and deceive you with my eyes, but my heart and I Never lie. The only thing that matters in life is that your heart be connected with love in an enabling way that allows your life to come out of a heart of love and not to create any kind of response. You will always win your man if you have a heart of love, which God has given you. You will never win her if you are in any way trying to achieve some kind of a goal that's called the law. So he says, now this, this hope of love has been manifested apart from the law because we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is Jesus Christ, which God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. Well, I'm going to close now by saying what I think that means. Let me read it one more time. I used to get a little bashful about reading theology like this. I thought expiation, sin, because I grew up liberal. I mean, I grew up in the, lib the so-called liberal world of religion. And these words had cultural baggage attached to them in my thought. But I now find at this point, I say, oh, whatever. I mean, no, There's a, let, let it flow, let it flow. And he says, this is it. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
Well, um, what I wanted to um, close with is the, um, the gospel proclamation is not a metaphor. Now, one of the things that happens to Christians is that we love metaphors. We're so sort of burned out on religious language sometimes that we want to see it but in a metaphor. This is, are any of you drawn to movies a lot that maybe have Christian redemptive uh, ideas in them or television shows that have Christian redemptive relationships in them? Friday Night Lights is probably one of the most consistent examples of a parable and a metaphor of Christian behavior on the part of the coach. Not so much his wife, although she's okay. But on the part of the coach, it's a powerful picture of, uh, of a man who is seized by a graceful approach to the most hardened and impossible young person that you can possibly find. But the trouble with metaphor is that we're, <laughs> there's no end to it. I mean, I can give you a list of what I would consider Christian-rooted 1950s horror movies that would drive, I mean, that will impress you no end. Now, the fact is, I meant that to be funny, but I guess it's not. Um, The point is, I'm a person who's been so eager to find metaphors all my life because I was a little disillusioned with the language that I kind of um, sometimes overrated the metaphor. You know, I used, for example, J.J. Abrams. He's really, really great. But he's not really talking about what we're talking about. He's talking about it somewhat. He's the director of Super 8 and a lot of very important movies. But if you actually listen to him and hear talks to him, he's actually barking up a different tree. Um, he's great, but sometimes what you do, especially young people, is we overfreight metaphors and we forget what it's actually saying. And what St. Paul is saying, and I realize this is quite startling, He's actually saying at a particular point in time, in the middle years of the Roman Empire, God put forth a man to receive the full judgment upon my unloving, alibi-creating, self-justificating, narcissistic, grandiose self, um, my weaning, deceitful you know, get around, a shortcut, always looking out for number one person, for some reason that I can't quite understand at all, he actually, in a moment in the late middle years of the Roman Empire, put forward a man who took this upon himself to the full cost of death. And that is simply the way it was, and it's a fact. And if you'd listen to the early Christians... If you'd listen to St. Peter and St. Paul, they were, that's what they were talking about. They were talking about, I've come to tell you about something that happened 24 years ago in this city that is radically significant. Um, one of the things, when you go to Jerusalem, and probably many of you have been, and I certainly recommend it, but if you ever go to Jerusalem, if you're a Christian of any school of thought, of any school of thought, when you walk in, It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was where Jesus Christ died upon the cross. And that's actually the place. We We can actually say, whether he rose from the dead, you may have questions about, but that's the place. I don't know of a single person, and I've been with hundreds and hundreds of people walking into that place. I don't know of a single one who hasn't immediately burst into tears. I don't know of one. 
My secretary in Birmingham was a real world, she was wonderful and spiritual, but she was really one of these no-nonsense women. I mean, she knew, she was really had her feet on the ground. I mean, my gosh, I loved her and everything, and I thought, well, she won't feel that way. She's the one person I know who, who get there and say, well, it was great, Paul, but still, you know, don't you have a, you know, have you, have you done the, the, the bulletin? You know? uh, and, um, well, wouldn't you know, even her just destroyed. Because there's something about this actual factuality of it that is uh, that this man actually died. He didn't just get sick. Um, and that is the uh, power. And I want to end with this word. This is what I believe the Christian movement or church needs to do, and then I'm finished. Um, you need to realize that the problem is psychological, but the solution is spiritual. The problem is psychological. You and I have an enormous amount of baggage related to mom and dad and siblings and lovers and wives and old boyfriends and old girlfriends and first jobs and second jobs and third jobs and being fired and illness and a child having a unduly developed lung at birth and car accidents and you name it. We have a million things of that kind and they have an enormous impact on our confidence. It's like Jimmy Webb's shoes. He looks at the girl's shoes and she see, he sees the evidence of a life of suffering and impasse and disappointment. The problem is, in fact, psychological or psychological slash emotional. But ultimately, the solution is spiritual and theological. Now, I'm going to talk uh, tomorrow, after you've heard from Sarah, who's wonderful, by the way. Just look at her shoes tonight. If you really want to see somebody knows how to do it. And she, can you believe she's a parson's wife? I mean, think about it. Uh, look at her shoes. They are such a statement. Um, what I'm... What I'm uh, she has a sense of humor, so she can handle that. But what I'm trying to say is the, um, I will talk tomorrow about how does this actually then process oh, as the new creation who has sort of a little bit grasped that someone died for me in history that actually does somehow connect. I can't even put my finger on it. I believe in the atonement, not because I'm J.I. Packer, or I have some heavily reformed doctrine of Pauline forensic justification. These are words. I believe in the atonement because somehow when I hear a preacher talk about the death of Christ for my sins to that extent, I can't quite put my finger on it, but the hair on my head still rises. I don't quite understand why. But when someone says somebody came who cared enough to take your lousy, self-oriented, Life and actually uh, lay down his own completely for you. I can't quite explain it, but it feels true. It, it feels like, oh gosh, don't, don't tell me anymore. Um, and uh, tomorrow we're going to talk a little bit about the resistance to this great message. Well, thank you for hearing me out.